Welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity. As always, this is James with a roundup of some of the biggest stories in New York that the Empire Center is looking at. Let's dive right in. Attorney General Tish James's recent lawsuits against nursing homes have not only exposed dangerous conditions for the residents, but also dangerous blind spots for the health department. In suits filed against three facilities, James's office charged that the operators repeatedly misstated or withheld information they were required to report, including COVID statistics, lease arrangements, and the identities of the true owners. The findings suggest that the health department needs to step up its auditing and crack down on reporting violations, or it's going to keep missing signs of bad care and misspent money. And now for a story of particular interest to the bridge and tunnel crowd. There's been one constant in New York State's fiscal picture despite the pandemic disruption. During the first year of the COVID-19 outbreak, personal income taxes paid by full-year non-residents continued flowing as if nothing had happened, even though very few of these taxpayers were still venturing into the Empire State. New York's taxation of non-resident telecommuters is grounded in a legal doctrine known as the Convenience of the Employer Rule, which requires that taxpayers that live and work in another state must nevertheless pay income taxes to their employer's state, even if they may never physically set foot in it. Finally, while it's true that the governor did not recommend a gas stove ban in her 2023 State of the State address, the Climate Action Council's scoping plan explicitly recommends banning sales of fossil fuel-fired hot water heaters in 2030 and fossil fuel-fired clothes dryers and stoves in 2035. The scoping plan is considered an official roadmap to implementing the CLCPA, and the Department of Environmental Conservation is supposed to set the rules for this implementation and they could begin the regulatory process to ban these appliances without the governor's direct prompting at any time. Even if an explicit ban isn't on the table, the scoping plan lays out the goal of diminishing the infrastructure for gas delivery. So there you have it, three big stories the Empire Center is following. I hope you enjoyed the rest of the episode. Debbie Gatte's got a great interview with Mark Moses talking about municipal finance, and we'll get an update on what's going on with the chief justice dilemma facing Governor Hochul and the legislature. Until next time, keep listening. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Messages of Necessity. Thanks to James for kicking us off with the news roundup. And now our guest for today is Mark Moses, who is the author of a book called The Municipal Financial Crisis. Now, if that doesn't sound like it, uh, it probably sounds relevant for everybody in New York who's thinking about their local government, whether you're in the big city or in a smaller place. And so we're really excited to learn from Mark the expertise that he has over the years and the framework that he's come up with that is meant to help local governments do better with their financial planning and their budgeting. So welcome to the show, Mark. Thank you, Debbie. It's great to be here. Good. So First of all, this is not a topic. I mean, I love your website is minifinanceguy.com, which is wonderful. Um, but not everybody can call themselves that. So could you tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book, what your experience is? Yeah, well, I spent about three decades in local government uh, administration and finance. And but before I entered local government, I had about a 10-year career in banking and real estate investments and 
small business consulting. So I, I came in and I also had an interest in, in practical economics. And so I came into local government with a perspective that most of the people I was working with did not have. And so as I watched how decisions were being made and how local government uh, perceived small businesses and the local business community and and how they perceived their role, I I was frustrated with just the, well, the ignorance of basic economics and and the avoidable frustrations that I witnessed. And so, uh, and, and, the, and that's really what inspired the book was I just saw council members come in thinking they could make a difference, frustrated by how many decisions had already been made that basically was, were setting the wheels of the organization in motion in a way that, that they could do little about. And so mm-hmm. I, I wanted to help people understand the dynamics more clearly, diagnose their financial and administrative problems uh, more readily so that the solutions that they would implement would would be more effective because the the common solutions, and we can get into a couple of examples of this, but the common solutions that you see are not working. And I know that firsthand because I've tried them all. Uh-huh. Well, so you're coming with a lot of experience. And that's a really great point that a lot of people get into local government and politics because they're motivated to do something um, good for their community and to help their community prosper and become a better place to live. That's what motivates them to get involved in local government. But we're not, we are not talking about people who necessarily have budgeting experience, finance experience, and then you have a permanent, more permanent staffing um, that is making decisions around those things. So I get, I kind of get the picture here. Yeah, and even um, people that come in with business experience, when they try to apply what they learned in the business world to local government, they get frustrated because yeah. the tricks of their former trades don't really work in in a local government agency that's really a legislative agency with enforcement powers that, that doesn't work the way their old business work that they ran. That makes sense. It's like its own little ecosystem. And yet at the same time, every local government across the country is probably just a little bit different. So I'm wondering, Mark, like if you could pick like one or two top mistakes, like what are the common errors that you see happening in different local governments from a budgeting and finance perspective, just to help our our audience understand what kind of problems local governments can run into. What would be like your favorite example or two of the things that go wrong? Yeah, well, I I think the way budget is conceptualized, it it gets people off to a wrong start. And maybe a good example is people talk about zero-based budgeting and embracing zero-based budgeting as a way to really dig in and clean up and and that all sounds great, and and it would be great if you could really implement it. In, what does that mean for people who don't know? What is zero-based yeah, okay, budgeting? Yeah, Z, yeah, thank you. The zero-based budgeting basically says you you start your budget year from zero with a basically blank slate, clean uh, of any commitments, and then you're going to build your budget based on the the priorities you have and in a way that 
is most efficient. So you're, in other words, you're not going to buy into the status quo way of doing things. You're going to create a new. And so, and that's why it sounds so great because cities have a way of accumulating a lot of baggage in terms of the way they do business and, and the systems they use. And so to think you can start fresh is, is very appealing. Mm -hmm. And so the, the problem is when the budget manager sits down to prepare a budget, 99 plus percent of the decisions have really already been made. It's already in motion. You've got labor agreements that are in place and labor agreements in public agencies are, are not just the setting of compensation. It's the setting of the way business is to be done. You have to consult with labor before you make dramatic changes in the way business is done, uh, particularly with fire departments. It covers scheduling and the deployment of resources of your personnel. And so, right, and, and, and local government, 80% of the expenses are are in our personnel related expenses. So right from the start, 80% of your budget is already spoken for just with the commitments you have to labor. And, and to untangle those or renegotiate those is a multi-year process, really, if you're going to make in-depth changes. Yeah. And then you've got the contractual agreements that the organizations made that are either fixed and so it's too late to change them from a point of view of contractually or or it's too late to change the the way you're doing business because you're you're so committed to that way of doing business. And so now so that's already in place. Then you have the politically well supported kind of items that are really hard to challenge on the spot and would take a long time to unravel. Mm -hmm. and, and then you've got the politically controversial pr activities that no one really wants to get into and stir up. Wow. So, okay. so, so by the time you get done or, or by the time you're really into it, you're, you're lucky if you haven't spent all of your resources by the time you finish your, your, your first line budget. And that, and that's why you hear early announcements of budget deficits because on the first take when you add up all the commitments it usually does exceed the available resources so instead of so, you're not, so the bottom line is you're not going to fix budget of, yeah, yeah instead of being able to start with a, sleep, a clean slate you're probably starting behind and so by the time you account for all the contractual obligations that are already locked into place and all of the political realities that sometimes maybe the, the folks coming into local government aren't fully aware how entrenched they are until they get there, you've got a pretty closed little bucket of things that you can work on. So now my question for you is if, if, it's, if, that, if that system is already so much of the financial picture is already locked into place, so much of the budgeting is already fixed and spoken for, what is a new, like, what is a local government to do to go from that current situation to start making progress so that they can be more fiscally responsible and actually start saving money out of the budget? So how do they start if they're so locked down in what they have now? Yeah, you have to go back to the basics of your your activities drive your costs mm -hmm. and and your scope of activities, which you're basically, which comes out of your mission and how you conceive of and and execute your mission is what 
drives the activities. And so you've you've got to really rethink the the mission of the organization, the scope of the organization, and the standard it uses to decide what it takes on. And and just some cities are blatant about it. They're you look at their mission and they say to maximize local services. Well, what does that mean to maximize local services when you're a legislative authority with enforcement powers and and the only resources you have really come through taxes Mm -hmm. to to maximize your impact through maximizing your services? You're just going to be in an ever expanding mode. And and that's the mode most cities are in. And that's why they, they come from such scarcity and always feel like they never have enough resources to do what they need to do because they've really taken on an open-ended scope. And so what needs to be done is to confine that, is to deliberately and and through a clear standard, it can't just be anything that's better for anybody in the vicinity justifies an activity. It has to be with more discretion about Wait, what's really appropriate for a legislative body with enforcement authority? Uh-huh. And it can't be everything or or you are going to come from scarcity right, and you're right. never going to have enough uh, and you're always going to be doing damage. I mean, this sounds like one of those common sense things where you cannot always be all things to all people, right? So now, obviously, we care about the state of New York um, in this in this show in particular, And New York is a state that has very different kinds of local governments. New York City is a local government there. And then we have much different um, smaller centers, urban centers, rural centers throughout the state. When, When you think about your framework that you have developed based on your experience and you look at the state of New York, where do you think local governments in New York could start in recognizing that it's one thing to be working with the city of New York and another thing to be working with a smaller region? Yeah, well, the more I get into this and the, through my research, because again, most of my experience is California-based, but the more I've looked nationwide and interacted with people nationwide, the more I find that this is a common problem, whether you're a small township or a large metropolitan city, The basics are the same. Uh, Part of the thesis of my book is that it's impossible to effectively administer or or budget for an amorphous organization. And that's what our cities have become, small and large. They determine what they do. They determine their missions from council meeting to council meeting. Mm -hmm. And, And that makes the job of administration and and budgeting more like juggling than than true financial planning or true organizational management. And and an interesting thing about city cultures, they they all tend to be very provincial in their own ways, you know, that, well, we're different. We don't, you know, this is our way of doing things. And so, but they're, they're a little schizophrenic because they're provincial on one side thinking they are so different, but then, whenever they want to justify something, they look at what everybody else is doing. And so they're constantly looking over their shoulder at everybody else. And so whether you're a large city, small city, rural, East Coast, West Coast, what I've learned over the last couple of years is the dynamics are the same. If you want to run an organization effectively, you have to define what it is. And defining what it is means for cities 
recognizing that you're, again, you're a local legislative authority with enforcement powers. There's some things you can and should do. And there are other things that just crowd out other viable solutions and often viable creative solutions to problems. So my last question for you is this. Most of us are not in our local government. However, most of us are subject to a local government. And, um, you know, given that the definition is so big a lot of times about what the local government should and shouldn't be doing, what do you, what would you recommend that, you know, those of us who live in a community, how can we encourage our local government to start taking the right steps? So what do, what do we do as people who live um, subject to the, the decisions of these local governments? Yeah, and, and I think a lot of it for for residents, for business owners, is understanding the nature of government, again, as a legislative authority, as an enforcement authority, and, and what that can and can't do. It, it can't solve every problem. And so I, I think, and I get it, a resident, you know, knows where City Hall is, sees a problem, they, they go to City Hall, and, and they want to, sometimes people just want to get their money's worth out of the taxes they're paying, which is understandable. But I think everyone's got to take a step back inside these organizations and outside and say, wait a minute, look what this has become. I mean, look at how all of these things layered upon layered are creating these many bureaucracies in, in local townships that that you never would have dreamt would have gotten you know, might have had four departments in the 80s and now have 10 departments uh, in the 2000s. Probably because... a department to manage all the departments. <laughs> exactly, exactly. And so the, and it's just overwhelming. And this is a sub, another discussion, but how overwhelming it is for people inside the organization. I mean, I'll just say my perspective, when I saw people coming saying, you know, we need you to solve this homeless problem. We need you to solve this or that. Uh, what was going through my head was if you understood the way we operated and the limitations we have and some of the political dynamics of of running a department in this kind of organization, you wouldn't really be coming to us to solve that problem because it's just not realistic. Mm-hmm. So so people need to understand the limitations of of a public agency. So I think that's a great place for us to wrap this up and something that people can really um, take away is that no matter whether you're in local government or voting for people who are entering local government, for all of us to think about what truly is the purpose of a municipal government. And that's what really drives what the budgeting decisions should be and to understand how limited right now the ability for a local government is to, to quickly change that a lot of things are locked into place it's going to be a long-term process for them. It does require some thoughtful um, planning and a framework, which is what you lay out in your book. So um, I'd encourage people who are in local government to read your book, to get the ideas for how they can go from where they are stuck in a box to where they could be more effective and using financial resources more efficiently. So uh, Mark, thank you so much for coming by today. Um, do you did I get the whole name of your book, or is there like a subtitle that you want to share? Yeah, it's the to? it's the municipal financial crisis: a framework for understanding and fixing government budgeting. Uh, published uh, last year by Palgrave Macmillan, 
So it's available on Amazon. People can go to my website, munifinanceguy.com. And uh, it's a, available wherever online, wherever they sell books. And uh, people can also contact me through my website as well. Yep, it's out there. And uh, not many people are working on this issue. So I encourage folks to look at what Mark is doing and uh, to look at his framework. So Mark, thank you for coming by and sharing some of your ideas and experience with us. And um, we'll talk to you again soon. That sounds great. Thanks again, Debbie. Thank you. All right. My name is Kyle Davis, and I'm the Director of Public Affairs uh, of the Empire Center. And I'm sitting down with Kim McDonald, who's the Executive Director of the Government Justice Center and Adjunct Fellow at the Empire Center as well. How are you doing today, Cam? I'm doing well. Thank you. So we have an interesting topic of, uh, for discussion today, uh, the nomination of Hector LaSalle to be the Chief Judge of the New York State uh, Court of Appeals. Kim, why don't you explain who Hector LaSalle is and why the job he is going for is so important? Yeah, sure. Well, I'm hope I'm hopeful that it's uh, still uh, new and fun for everyone. We've been hearing about it for a while, and uh, and uh, the issue keeps on uh, hanging around. But Hector LaSalle is uh, currently the Chief Justice of the uh, Second Department. Uh, appellate division. Uh, New York, for those who don't know, has uh, four appellate divisions that take intermediate appeals from uh, the Court of General Jurisdiction, which is the uh, New York Supreme Court, uh, which exists in every county in the state, uh, including each of the five boroughs. Uh, he has been nominated to be the chief judge of the Court of Appeals, which uh, is you know, it, it, it's in addition to hearing cases and and rendering decisions um, uh, in in the at the top level appeals court of the state. It, it's also he, the, the chief judge is also the person who kind of runs the judiciary branch of the government. So it's got uh, the, 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 there's multiple hats that the chief judge uh, wears. And as you mentioned, the, the the Hector LaSalle controversy has been going on for you know a couple of weeks, probably over a month now. Um, but there has been opposition to LaSalle. Uh, and there's been a couple court cases folks have pointed towards. Do you want to give us an overview of what maybe they're making some concerns out of in terms of his appointment? Yeah, I mean, I think you first off, I think uh, Governor Hochul, when she made the appointment from the list of potential uh, nominees that the Judicial Nominating Commission came up with for her, uh, might have been very surprised by the reaction because, um, the you know, the, the cases in his body of work, which I, I, is, is pretty large, I, I think the numbers that came up at the hearing were something like 5,000, boiled down to a handful of cases where uh, the, the his opponents could latch on to some sort of special interest issues, um, one of them being uh, that he was anti-union. And in that case, it was one where there was, um, I believe that was Cablevision, uh, you know, a corporate uh, plaintiff uh, filed a lawsuit that had defamation counts in it, including uh, individual defamation counts against the um a couple of union officers. Uh, the the opposition to 
LaSalle's opponents pointed to a court of appeals decision uh, that said, uh, you know, that it wasn't proper for there to be definite defamation claims against officers of union for their union activities, which is fair enough. And that is true. But also in that court of appeals decision, uh, they didn't address the fact that or they left alone the fact that there also in that case had been uh, individual uh, claims against those uh, union officers for what was deemed non-union activities. And so here, the same sort of scenario played out. And what had happened was Cablevision in in their complaint, and I think he was able, he even named maybe the paragraph in the complaint, maybe paragraph 38 or something like that. Uh, he uh, he said, listen, they, they made allegations of these people doing things in the individual capacities, which could stand at a motion to dismiss. And so for those who aren't familiar with how um, civil procedure works in that case, a, a, a court at a motion to dismiss stage in a case must take everything in the complaint as true. And in fact, you know, read any ambiguities in favor of 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 the plaintiffs. So he was on pretty solid ground with what he did. And it was just really a mischaracterization of how legal procedure works and what was contained in the complaint. Um, I can go on, I'll go on quickly with, um, because people, most people probably heard about it, but there was also a matter with crisis, a crisis pregnancy center where um, he was deemed to be anti-abortion. And all that had happened there was uh, former AG Schneiderman had, uh, issued very, very broad ranging subpoenas on this crisis pregnancy center uh, regarding the fact that they might have been practicing medicine there without a license. And among cat and what um, the, the appellate division did there was was limit the, the breadth and scope of the subpoena and not even really completely limited. It gave kind of um guidelines to the the Supreme Court, the trial court, for how it should review records that Snyderman was was looking for. But it basically said that, you know, there was there's a First Amendment right to association, there's a First Amendment right to um to speech that meant that somebody who was just uh, you know, uh, a receptionist, for instance, at the crisis pregnancy center, didn't have to have all of that person's personal information um, handed over, you know, credentials and transcripts from school and so on. And there that Schneiderman had not really made a showing as to why he needed to get a, the donor information in a matter that related to the unlicensed practice of, of medicine. So, you, so in your opinion, those two main examples—they—they were kind of just making making problems where there weren't problems. Yeah, I mean, you know, the LaSalle opponents came in with an agenda. They decided that um, he wasn't the person for the job. I don't know that anybody listening to him describe himself would call would consider him to be a self-described conservative like he was being labeled a conservative. And really, you know, sort of my take on the essence of the questions that came from the senators who voted against him was here was opposing him taking the law as written and applying it to the facts you know and not getting the outcome they liked so you know a couple of the senators they're they're questioning one along the lines of well you know you were supposed to um read this statute 
liberally and you didn't get to the conclusion you needed to. And, you know, his answer to that was, well, there wasn't a more liberal way to to read the plain writing of the of the statute and you know they also just didn't like the results that he got by following court of appeals precedent there was an issue with you know preemptive strikes to jurors where um there was not court of appeals precedent saying that it could be done on skin color alone that was subsequently changed by a court of appeals decision that he applauded repeatedly that change in the precedent in his testimony. But the reality is, is that when he was deciding the case as, as you know, a, an intermediate appellate ju justice, uh, there was binding precedent on them that um, they couldn't buck. And so, you know, out, out the window went all this um, sort of um, uh, loyalty to legal precedent that we heard for decades in the Roe v. Wade debates, for instance, and now apparently you're just supposed to, he's conservative if he doesn't get the result despite the written law or the, you know, the, the binding precedent on lower courts. So for the past few days, at least, it seems that Hochul has been pretty quiet about this. Um, what do you anticipate her next steps as being? Do you think she'll actually go forward and uh, try to make the full Senate take a vote on this and challenge it in the courts? Or do you think uh, something else is going to happen? You know, I, I I really don't know. I don't know if, um, if, you know, the threat of a lawsuit is maybe something she would use as leverage to get something else that she wants, that uh, whether, you know, there's some sort of legislation that, um, you know, may not be veto proof that she'd be willing to support in exchange for, you know, um, a, a better path for a new nominee. Um, you know, she gave up a lot of leverage when she signed the salary increases on, you know, an hour before midnight on New Year's Eve for the legislators um, without getting, apparently without getting any sort of deal in return. So, you know, whether she can use the threat of a lawsuit to get something is is one question. Whether or not she's got nothing to lose by taking the, the um, Senate to court and trying to force a a floor vote um, at the Senate, maybe uh, you know maybe her only option if she wants to uh, maintain her credibility and 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 stick with this nominee. Yeah, no, I th I think you're right, Cam. Um... I think that there's been some some missed opportunities in terms of uh, moving that nomination along. It'll definitely be interesting to see what Hochul does over the course of the next few weeks and months. Um, but I would like to thank everyone for tuning in to this episode of Messages of Necessity, and we hope to see you soon. For more news and analysis, visit our website and sign up for email updates at empirecenter.org. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Empire Center.